Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. Well, it's a warm and pleasant day in Los Angeles. The sun is shining. Had a little rain yesterday. But what you're about to hear is a talk I gave last night to the Buddhist club at UCLA on why I volunteer, why I'm a Buddhist volunteer. Hope you find it interesting. Hope you find it useful. So, without further introduction, my talk to the Buddhist club at UCLA on why I volunteer. So, I'm going to talk about my experience as a volunteer, as a Buddhist volunteer, and, and how I got started, and why I volunteer. And um, so, some of the stuff may surprise you, and some of the stuff may make perfect sense. So, uh, mainly the reason I'm a Buddhist volunteer is because I'm ordained. I have an ordination. And um, that's the reason people call me and ask me to volunteer. Because I have, up, up until 10 years ago, I had absolutely no experience as a volunteer. You know, I, I thought it was a nice thing to do. Uh, you know, I was always, in, you know, looked at people who did volunteer and thought, my, my, they must, you know, have a lot of energy and they must really want to help the world and they want to change it in a positive way. And I don't want to discourage them, but I have absolutely no desire to go in that direction because I'd rather watch TV. And so then I got ordained, you know, and I wasn't quite sure what I was supposed to do um, as an ordained person, especially as an American or Westerner who's ordained in the Buddhist tradition because the, the Asian Buddhist monks and nuns that I knew of pretty much just stayed at the temple. You know, they were invited out occasionally for food, dana, it's called, and they would go out and they might give a talk, but then they most of the time just stayed in the temple. And, and I couldn't really figure out why they'd want to do that until I became ordained and I started to dress funny, and then I realized really the only place you fit in is at the temple. Because when you're walking around like this out there, everybody knows that you're not supposed to be out there because you don't fit in. You don't dress like normal people and your hair is a little too short though it seems to be the style these days. Uh, so I, I realized that there's this sort of a comfort zone at the temple for monks and nuns because that's where they can just sort of relax and, um, and do their practice and reflect and read and, and not have to put any um, airs on or not have to seem to be more than they are, you know? So there, so there was I, and I was at the temple, and I was in my comfort zone, and I was in my room, and I had just got my first computer, and I was learning how to use that. And then I got this phone call from Deacon Szymanski, and he's, he, he's dead now, but, but he was a, a Catholic who became a deacon after his wife died. And uh, he was a uh, Catholic volunteer chaplain Actually, he was getting paid. So he was a Catholic chaplain at L.A. County State Prison for Men up in Lancaster, California. And I had just 
had an article in the LA Times. Somebody, uh, I, one of the reporters called me up and said, "Can we do an article on you? Because you, you know, because you're like an American Buddhist monk, and that's so unusual. And we'd just like to talk to you and see what you think." So I left my room and talked to her, and uh, and that ended up in the LA Times. And then he saw that and said, "I've got like a lot of Buddhist prisoners up here, and and there's no other Buddhists coming to this prison, and I frankly don't know what to do. Would you be willing to just offer you know the time to come up here once a week and work with the Buddhist prisoners?" And I really needed to pause because, you know, number one, it was going to Lancaster. And it's like about an hour and a half from here. And it's really, it's like up on Upper Desert, and it's always so cold up there in the winter and really hot during the summer. And it's like just desert, and there's nothing up there. And all I had was a motorcycle. I didn't have a car. So I'm thinking, okay, i got to ride my motorcycle for an hour and a half to the Upper Desert, you know, in a hot summer days and the cold winter days. It even snows up there. And I'm going to be riding my motorcycle in the snow. So I thought about it. I said, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. What do I need to do? And they said, well, we, we need to do a background check on you. And the background check's going to take a couple months. So you have to fill out the forms. We'll send them to you. And then you send them back to us. And then we'll see if you're, you know, uh, okay to come in here. So I sent in my form. Still never been up there to Lancaster or the prison, but they, they sent me the forms, filled them out. And then I was okayed. They okayed me. I, you know, I shouldn't be surprised by that, but they did. And, and then I called Deacon Szymanski and says, okay, I'm, I'm coming up. I'm coming up this week. Can you meet me and sort of help me? Because I've never been a volunteer before. And I've never been in a prison before either. So I'm not quite sure, you know, uh, what to do or how to do it. And he said, sure, no problem. Because like, just, I'll, I'll meet you at the gate and I'll take you through the whole thing. Well, and there is a gate there. There's a big gate there. And there's like this guard, you know, shack there. And you have to show your driver's license and they have to check to see if you're supposed to be there that day. And then, and then, and then I, I've got like a motorcycle and they say, you know, you can't take all this stuff with you in the prison. And I said, but, I, I have a motorcycle. I'm just going to stick it on my motorcycle. So I had to take off my coat and put my coat on the motorcycle. You know, anything I was carrying with me that I shouldn't take into the prison, I had to keep on the motorcycle. And I'm thinking, this is so weird because if you had a car, you had a trunk and you could lock it up. So I have all this stuff hanging off my motorcycle in the parking lot as I walk into the prison. And the first place I went was in this sort of like, a little restaurant kind of thing that they had for the for the staff, and they had prisoners cooking the food and cleaning the place up. But the staff ate there, so I met Deacon Szymanski there, and I looked around and and you know it was an odd place to be because there wasn't any love or kindness here. It was just sort of like clinical, you know. There was you know a few you know cheap prints on the wall, you know, and, and everything was clean, and people were always cleaning and working and stuff, and those were the prisoners. And so Deacon Szymanski sort of just, you know, filled me in on what I needed to do, and what I needed to do was go in and, and talk to the Buddhist prisoners about Buddhism. And I said, well, I can do that, 
but do you have like a lot of Buddhist prisoners here? And he said, yeah, we have quite a few. We have a lot of, you know, ethnic Buddhists. We have a lot of Asian Buddhists. We have like Vietnamese Buddhists. We have Chinese Buddhists. And we have Thai Buddhists. And we have all those here. And then we have like a lot of Westerners who heard about yoga and meditation. And they might be interested in coming too to, to listen to you talk. So uh, what I did, he said to me, is I sort of let everybody know that you were coming today so if any of the prisoners wanted to come and listen to you, they could, they could meet you in the chapel. And I said, okay, so that's where we're going to meet. We're going to meet in the chapel. And he said, yes, we have a chapel, and it's a non-denominational chapel. And sometimes the Christians are over here, and the Jews are there, and the American Indians are over here, and the Muslims are over here. And, and we're going to give you one of the rooms, and you can, that will be the Buddhist room today, because there will be other groups there, too, with you. But they'll be in different parts of the chapel, and so they won't interfere with you. And so I said, okay, great. And now I have to take all my metal objects out of my pockets and put it in this like sort of like tray and then stick it in a locker because now I'm going to go into the prison. They have these gi- giant gates that sort of like swing open, and there's these guard turrets, everybody's sort of watching you. And, and so I left most of my stuff on the motorcycle, and what little stuff I had left is now in my little box there. And then they gave me this little plastic garage door opener, which is, which is my salvation. They said, if anything happens to you, I want you to press this button, and, and, and we'll come and get you. We'll come and save you if something goes down. And, and I'm thinking, you know, as a Buddhist, I really didn't have a whole lot of faith to begin with. And, and now to go into this prison and have a garage door opener as my... As my only salvation, uh, I, I just, well, okay, I'm going to do it, I said to myself. This isn't, it's not going to be that hard. And so now we started walking down the corridors, and the gates would open, and we'd walk in, the gates would close, and then the gate in front of us would open, and we'd walk out, and that would close. And it was just like this series of gates and hallways, all I can remember, and these tall, tall fences. And there's four yards in this prison. And, and in between two of the yards is a teepee. American Indian teepee with like a, a fire pit. And I had to ask Deacon Samaski, I said, what's that? Well, we have American Indian religions here, and, and that's, that's where they pray. That's where they do their spiritual work. So they actually do sweat lodges at this prison. And they have a teepee that they use. I mean, this is so cool. We've come a long way. So finally I get to the chapel, and I see my prisoners in the yard. They're all lined up. These are my guys. I'm thinking, okay, good to see you. And so I get into the little room, and the guys are all let in. Very polite, so polite, that you wouldn't think they should be there. They're, yes, sir, no, sir, we're so glad you came. Thank you for taking the time to drive up here. And I said, oh, no problem, you know. And so I'm thinking to myself, well, should I ask them why they're here? Or should I just sort of skip that and just assume they're supposed to be here? And... <laughs> And, and I'm just going to, so I didn't ask anybody why they're there because I, I didn't want to make them feel uncomfortable. I figured if they wanted to tell me and share that with me, they would later. And so the, my, my very first time there, what we did, we just talked. We just talked about Buddhism. And <laughs> this was my first indication that a lot of Buddhists don't know much about Buddhism. You know, because I'm a convert, as you probably could imagine. You know, I was a Lutheran in my 
early years. I was an agnostic in my teenage and t early 20s, and then I became a Buddhist. And, and so before I became a Buddhist, I wanted to know what Buddhism was. And I read a lot of books on Buddhism. And I went to meditation center, and I sat and meditated, and I, I listened to teachers speak about Buddhism. So I had a really good idea what Buddhism was about, at least as far as I was concerned, it was a good idea what it was about, before I said, I'm a Buddhist. But then I met these guys who were Buddhist because their parents were Buddhist. You know, and when they went to the temple, they offered incense to the Buddha. That's what they did. Okay. So I said, would you know the story of the Buddha? Well, sort of. Do you know the Four Noble Truths? Well, I've heard about them. Do you know the Eightfold Path? Do you meditate? Well, no. But I said, okay. So this is why. So what I needed to do is find out what my audience was, and my audience were a lot of Buddhists who were Buddhists because their parents were Buddhists. That's family, but they didn't know much about it, and they and they didn't have anybody in the prison who really knew more than they did. It seemed, and so my job was to start by explaining what Buddhism was, as far as I was concerned. And we started right at the beginning. This, this is who the Buddha was, historical evidence, and this is how he lived, and this is, he had a wife and child, and then he became enlightened, and he taught for 45 years, the path to the end of suffering. And, and I said, you guys have any Buddhist books here? No, no, no. We've got Bibles over there, but no Buddhist books. I said, okay, well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get some Buddhist books for the prison. So when I got back to Los Angeles, I s talked to various centers and people I knew and got tons of books. You know, I couldn't take them on a motorcycle, so we had other people sort of transport them up there for me. But we had a whole library. But now the question is, well, where, do, where do we put this Buddhist library? Do we keep the Buddhist library in the chapel? And one of the prisoners said, no. And I said, why? Because they will end up missing People will throw them away. I said, huh. Well, who's going to throw them away? Oh, the Christians, the Jews, the Muslims, everybody else, you know, because they don't want that stuff up here because they believe this way. And uh, so I'm going, okay, so what, what should we do? One of the prisoners said, I'll be the librarian. We'll keep all the books in my cell. And I will keep a ledger and we will write who takes it out and when they come back so we can keep track of them. And I said, oh, that is so cool. Okay. So we had a librarian now, and he was taking care of all the Buddhist books. Then I got some Buddhist cassette tapes so they could listen to other people talking about the Dharma. And, and those ended up in the chapel because they were sent to the prison. And then when we finally got to those cassette tapes, they had been taped over. People had taken those cassette tapes and taped over them. And now we had all sorts of other things on there besides Buddhism. <laughs> so I said, okay, well, maybe we need to keep the cassette tapes in the cell with the, with the books so we can sort of like just, I don't want to say guard them, but just sort of, you know, make sure they're used in the way they were intended to be used rather than abused. So that was my first understanding of sort of an interreligious chapel in a state prison. It's not everybody was really happy that we were there. And 
most of the people up there didn't know anything. I mean, the Buddhists didn't know much about Buddhism, but the other people knew nothing about Buddhism. So one of my first projects was to make people feel comfortable with me. You know, that I'm this regular guy who rides a motorcycle, and I talk about Buddhism, and I wanted to start a class on Buddhism, but then I wanted to start Buddhist meditation too. And so I said, well, this was about four or five weeks into my going up to Lancaster. How are we going to do it? I said to the assembled prisoners. Let's have a meditation class too, but how are we going to do it? What are we going to sit on? So one of the prisoners said, you know, I can get some blankets because they have spare blankets here, these wall blankets, those really itchy ones. You know, and, and we can just roll those blankets up as one as a cushion and then one as a zabotan. So, we, so with two blankets, we can have our meditation space. So we got a whole stack of blankets. And then we started to meditate. And so I started to instruct the prisoners about meditation. I said, well, you know, for me, one of the best ways to start meditation is to keep your eyes closed, because that way you won't be distracted by other people in the room. And not one of the prisoners kept their eyes closed. So I had to ask, I said, I said, is there something wrong with closing your eyes? Yeah, the guy next to me. We can't trust anybody here. So we don't close our eyes. So uh, we ended up having our eyes open uh, in meditation. It worked fine. It just was something I wasn't used to. But they felt much more comfortable because they could, you know, keep track of where everybody was and what they were doing. Okay. Now... A couple of the prisoners came up to me and said, you know what would be really nice with the meditation is some incense. Do you think you could get some incense up here for us? And then we could have the, we have the blankets, and we could have some incense, and, and maybe a Buddha statue too, maybe just a small one that we could keep in the cell with the cassette tapes and the books. But that would sort of like make it more Buddhist. And I said, no problem. I've I got a little statue I can carry in my motorcycle with me. And incense... I can get tons of incense. Well, I did. I had like, you know, 10,000 sticks of incense. Okay. And I brought it up in this bag, and everybody was so happy. And then a week later, they were all out. I said, I brought 10,000 sticks of incense. <laughs> you guys are meditating that much? Well, we sold it. <laughs> so there's like this underground market in the prison, you know. And incense became valuable because it smelled good. And to be honest with you, nothing smelled good in the prison. So they were selling it to other prisoners so their cells would smell good. So I was like the supplier. (laughs) And I said, (laughs) I said, no more incense. I said, you know, we can't, I, I didn't bring it up here for you guys to sell. I realized, you know, that times are tough. But it was for our religious practice, you know, not for commerce. And, and, and so they sort of like, okay, oh, that's okay, Kusla, you know, you don't have to. But, you know, we really appreciate it if you could. And I can, <laughs> you know. So, so then, as, as the weeks went on, they became even more comfortable with me. And they said, and then a couple of them approached me again, a little group of Buddhist prisoners. Kusla, we'd like you to talk to the warden for us. And I went, oh, man. What? Well, I said, well, why do you want me to talk to the warden? Well, we'd like to have vegetarian food here. 
and we're Buddhists, and all Buddhists are vegetarian. I said, but I'm not a vegetarian. I'm a Buddhist. Oh, no, no. Most Buddhists in the world, they said to me, are vegetarian. And, and if we require certain foods for our diet because of our religion, the prison, and the laws say that they have to do it, and we'd like you to go to the, to the warden and say, all Buddhists are vegetarian, and I want my Buddhist prisoners to be, have fresh produce every day. And I said, well, you know, I didn't come up here to change your diet. I came up here to change your consciousness. And there are plenty of people advocating for you in the court system and uh, other groups that are interested in, 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 in the rights of prisoners. And, and my, my sole purpose of being here is to share the Dharma with you. That's why I'm here. And when I heard myself say those words, I finally understood why I was there. At first, it wasn't, it wasn't really clear because I didn't have any idea of what a Buddhist volunteer should do. Should a Buddhist volunteer change the system? Is that the job a Buddhist volunteer does? And all systems are flawed. You know? So we would be working like crazy, changing systems in the world and never find any perfection in that, never any end to that. So I guess what I came to understand was, was my real job was to change them and not the system. My job was to give them tools that they could use to make their prison stay similar to a stay in a monastery. You know, I thought about how they lived they actually live better than a lot of Buddhist monks live. Some Buddhist monks, depending on what country, have two meals a day. They have breakfast and they have lunch before 12, and that's all the food they eat. Well, the Buddhist prisoners had three meals a day. Now, granted, they weren't very good meals, but they had three chances to eat. The prisoners had health care. That there's, a firm in, there's an infirmary on the premises that they could go to if they were sick. I know a lot of Western Buddhist monastics that have no health insurance at all because they're not associated with a monastery or they uh, have opted out of paying taxes. Now, if you're clergy, you can stop paying taxes. Isn't that cool? You can say, I'm, I'm, um, I've chosen a vow of poverty. And so the government allows us not to pay taxes. But what happens when you stop paying taxes is when you get really old and need Social Security, you have little or no Social Security. And then when you don't pay taxes, you don't get Medicaid and Medicare either. And so these, these Western monastics who in the beginning didn't have any money, couldn't pay taxes even if they wanted to, now they got old. How about that? We all get old. And now they have no medical. They have no Social Security. They're literally... I know some monastics who are living in group houses. They've decided to rent a house together and help each other live. And I think Catholic nuns have done that in the past as well, and currently, too. Uh, so... When I, when I thought about the prisoners having medical care access to it 24-7, and a lot of Buddhist monastics, no medical care, no Social Security, that, that in some ways, being a prisoner 
at least as far as basic needs are concerned, they're met. And and they really not, don't have to do a whole lot of stuff if they don't want to. They have an opportunity to go to school if they want. They have some simple classes. In the old days, they used to be able to get a college education in prison. But people didn't like that. People said it's not fair to go to prison and get a college education. And I said, well, that's an interesting attitude, isn't it? That, you know, it's supposed to be you deserve it. You worked hard for it. And, and here these guys didn't work hard for it. They, 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 sh- they should be punished. And so we should prevent them from getting an education. But I think for me, as I thought about that, the problem with that idea is that one day they may get out and live next to you. Now, wouldn't you want somebody living next to you that had like a master's degree and a full-time job <laughs> instead of no education and no job? <laughs> and they live next to you and you have like a lot of nice stuff and they have no stuff? You know, so I'm thinking, why not educate them? Why not make this an opportunity for them to really change their life in a positive way? Get a good education, get a different perspective on the world. And yet... The, you know, the powers to be said, no, we're not going to do that. So they have some opportunities for education, but a lot of it is like um, making license plates and building furniture and stuff like that. It's not, not really, not very good. And so, so now they have time. They could, they, they could meditate. They could study the Dharma. They could uh, uh, change the inside and leave the outside just the way it is and be able to to feel comfortable with that and not have to change the system, but rather change themselves. So I must say I was a little hesitant initially to even go into the prison and be a volunteer because I thought this is going to be a lot of work and these people are going to be terrible. And actually the people were just wonderful. Every, every Buddhist prisoner that I was involved with was just a really nice guy. There was one moment in their life when they weren't, though, you know, and that's why they were there. But, you know, even the worst guy has some moments of goodness in him, and so they're not terrible all the time. And they're just, you know, that one moment that when they weren't thinking, should have stepped back from the situation, should have taken five breaths, and, you know, and done loving-kindness meditation. That one moment changed their whole life, and, and there they were. And now I had to go in and sort of like say, okay... I'm going to accept you just the way you are today. I'm going to look at you today. I don't know anything about your past. I don't know much about your future. But today we're here, and how am I going to accept you just the way you are? Well, it, it was pretty easy when I didn't know why they were there. But then when they felt more comfortable with me, they started to tell me why they were there. One guy killed his whole family, his wife and kids. They were camping. He took them all out at the same time. I'm thinking, hey, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> this is where you need to be. <laughs> and I'm here to help you, but I hope you never get out. Now, I didn't say that to him, but that's sort of the way, the attitude I had, you know. I'm just going to work with you and make you the best person you can be. But you got some issues that may not be resolved in this lifetime. And I can't help you with those. I can help you with the other stuff. So that was challenging, too. How do you come to a place of acceptance with a guy that took out his whole family? How do you look at him and then just say, 
Hi, how are you? Got some good weather today, don't we? Yeah, it's great outside. Sun is shining. You know? And, and some of the guys there had wives, you know? And the wife would come with them into the, into the class. Well, now the wife, though, was a prison wife. It was sometimes their cellmate was the wife. And it was difficult at first to just sort of sit there and, and see the wife and see these two guys. I'm going, geez, you know, I've heard stories, but now I'm looking at it. And how do I feel about that? You know, can I come to a place of acceptance with that? And then there's the hierarchy of the prisoners, too, all dependent on power and strength that the prisoner with the most strength and the most power was top guy. And it worked exactly the same way with the guards, too. That there was a hierarchy in the guards. And so all the prisoners knew who the top dog was. All the guards knew who the top dog was. I didn't know. I just went in there and everybody, you know, was seemed normal to me. One day I'm up there, the sirens go off. The chapel door closes and locks automatically. And, and I look at one of my guys and I said, what's that? He says, shots fired. One of the guards had shot at one of the prisoners doing something in the yard. And as soon as shots are fired, all the doors are closed and locked. So we got the Christians over here. We got some Muslims over here. We got the Buddhists over here. We got the door locked. Don't know how long. I still got my garage door opener, but I'm thinking it's probably no good at all at this point. So I'm looking at my prisoners. I'm thinking, these guys are pretty good. They're fast. They're strong. (laughs) 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 If something goes down, I got my guys with me. (laughs) And and there was a woman there, and, and she was a Christian volunteer, and she was the only woman in the whole chapel. Now, there must have been 50 guys in there and this one woman. And, and God bless her. She did that because of her faith and her desire to help humankind. But when that door locked, she walked over to that door and just looked out the window and didn't budge from that spot until it opened again. She didn't even look back. She's just looking out the window. I'm thinking, oh, man, poor woman, you know. And there's nothing I could say to make her feel any better, you know. I, I just, but everybody, you know, I mean, nothing happened. But you could just see that she realized what kind of situation she was in, and there's nothing she could do. So there were times like that when you just, you know, had to understand that this was a tribal situation. The lowest common denominator was being played out. It's all about power and territory. And so we had our territory, the little Buddhist club in the prison. That was our territory. We were there. And one of the funniest things that happened to me came from the guard, one of the guards. He was, he was new, or at least I was new to him. And, and I caught him by surprise. And he said, why are you here? Who are you? Are you supposed to be here? Well, I was already past five gates, so I'm assuming, you know, uh, he would, should have known I was supposed to be there. And I said proudly, I, well, I'm the Buddhist volunteer. I'd come to talk to the Buddhist, the Buddhist prisoners. And he said, next we're going to have astrologers coming up here. <laughs> In sort of a cynical way. 
And I'm looking at him going, wow, you know. Yeah. So he didn't want me to be there either. He just, you know, I was a problem for him. Now, years after this, I was invited to go to Huntington Beach and speak to a volunteer group. And these, all these volunteers were there. And they'd been volunteering in prisons and hospitals and all these places that need volunteers. And it was my turn to talk, and I, I talked a little bit about what I was doing. And then I had this question. A woman raised her hand and said, Why are you a volunteer, Kusla? What do you, what do you hope to accomplish, Kusla, as a volunteer? And you know what? I had heard what they had all said, and I was very impressed. You know, they really wanted to make the, the, the wrongs right. They saw, you know... The, the lopsided way people are dealt with in our culture and our community and, and they wanted to have a more balanced approach to that and they were willing to put their, their life or at least their time on the line for what they believed in. And, and I wasn't there for any of those reasons. I, I feel that this, you know, that this is ultimately always going to be unsatisfactory and this, no political system is ever perfect and no bureaucracy and, and no organization is ever going to be the way it's supposed to be. There's always going to be problems. And the people within those organizations are always going to have issues and agendas and struggles. And, and so I couldn't say I wanted to change the world because I never felt that I could change the world. I felt the world was flawed, always will be, always has been. You know, that's what the Buddha said too. That's why he called it samsara, the place where birth and death occur. And so I, I really had to think, and I couldn't come up with an answer. I, I felt so bad, because I had all this wonderful PR about all the good stuff I was doing, and, and how I was traveling here, and talking here, and being useful here. And yet when I was asked why I was doing it, I had no answer. I couldn't tell them why I was doing it. And, and yet, a couple weeks later, and that's how it works for me. I don't know how it works for you, but... But it sort of sort of rumbles around in my subconscious for a while, and then it then it just becomes obvious the answer. Well, the obvious answer arose, and I was sort of startled by how easy it was, and and why didn't I think about that before? So I must say, uh, the primary reason, perhaps the only reason, because I don't particularly like to be a volunteer. You know, I mean, I get a lot of certificates, and my wall is filled with them. And I can look at that wall of me and say, wow, look what I've done. But, you know, that's not really... If you're going to do it for certificates, you're probably doing it for even a worse reason than not knowing why you're doing it. But the reason I ended up being a volunteer was because people are suffering. People are suffering. It's that easy. It's that simple, that everything the Buddha talked about was how to help end human suffering. And being a volunteer is a very practical and useful way to end human suffering. So I couldn't ever stop and say, I'm doing it to change the world. I'm doing it to make people better. I'm doing it to make myself better. The only answer was, I'm doing it because people are suffering. And if they're not suffering, they don't need me to volunteer. You know? 
Now, I've done some weddings. That's not volunteer work because there's nobody suffering. Everybody's having a great time. I have fun, too. They always have good cakes. You know? But when I'm called to service, I see that I'm called to service because I'm ordained, I'm a Buddhist, and people are suffering. And the Buddha for 45 years did one thing only. He taught why humans suffer, and then he taught how to end human suffering. 45 years. Anyone who wanted to find out about suffering, he was available. And if he wasn't available, he had many monks and nuns that were. And he sent them into all directions, saying everybody on this planet is suffering. There's much work to do. Ah, any questions? Yes. Um, isn't trying to end suffering another way of saying you're trying to change the world? Well, you know, when I look at the world, I sort of look at like the earth and all the institutions on the earth and then and, and realize that the earth doesn't suffer and the buildings don't suffer and the freeways don't suffer. But it's all the people that use those buildings and drive on those freeways and live on this planet. They're the ones that are suffering. So in a way, I'd have to say probably not. I'm probably not trying to change the world in, in the, that, the easy sense of the word. I'm trying to change people who live in the world. And, uh, and, um, but there are organizations that are dedicated to changing, you know, the freeway structures and the building and the institutions. And they're, they're working hard and they have some success. Uh, but the Buddhist volunteers that I've come in contact with are pretty much people oriented. They're pretty much, you know, change the person, not the institution. That's, that, that's how I see it. Thanks for the question. Anything else? Any? Okay. Well, why don't we take five minutes and we'll stretch our legs and then we'll do some meditation. Well, that's it. That was my talk to the Buddhist Club at UCLA on why I volunteer. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. For more information about me, please visit my website, kusala.info. That's kusala.info. If you'd like to download some free ebooks on Buddhism, please visit buddhabooks.info. That's buddhabooks.info. I have uh, many more podcasts and talks and interviews I've given. You can find those on iTunes or dharmatalks.info. That's dharmatalks.info. If you'd like to email me, my email address is kusala at urbandharma.org. Well, until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.